Jude 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept and unnoticed who long ago were designated for their, this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever had a conversation that needed to happen, but nothing in you wanted it to happen? If you're like me, if you found yourself in that place, you might find that the small talk at the beginning of that conversation goes a bit longer than it needed it to. <laughs> I had to make some phone calls like that, um, and they weren't really super hard conversations, but it was kind of sensitive, hard news that I had to share um, over the last couple of weeks. And I tell you, I found all kinds of questions to ask to get life updates and to catch up before I got to the heart of the matter. You guys know what I'm talking about? The conversations that have to happen, but they're not fun. They're not ones that we want to have. I have a lot of empathy for Jude as the Holy Spirit told him what he was to write in this letter of the New Testament. Because there were things that Jude would have loved to write to the believers about. He specifically says that he would be eager, he was eager, to write to them about their common salvation, their shared salvation. Not common in the sense of not worth a lot. Common in the sense of we have it in common. We share this salvation. There's so much that Jude would have loved to have written about. I bet it would have centered in a lot on the blood of Jesus and the incredible sacrifice that God had made out of love for them. I bet it would have had a lot to do with their identity as children and being set free from shame. There are lots of things about our common shared salvation that it's a joy to write about or to preach about. And I have a lot of empathy for Jude because as a preacher, I often feel as he felt as this writer that there are things I would love to preach, but I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to preach something else. And that's where Jude is as he writes to these believers and as he writes through God's Spirit to us this morning. There's so much Friends, can I even say there's so much more than what we're experiencing right now of the Lord? I'd love to be able to preach about But the Holy Spirit compels that it's necessary to preach about things that are hard, that are not always fun. Just like he compels us to have hard conversations when we'd much prefer to talk about the beautiful autumn weather that we're having 
It didn't skip autumn this year. It's awesome. But the Holy Spirit compels us to talk about something else. And so Jude has addressed the people of God, and we talked last week about who the true people of God are, that they are, as he addresses them again in verses 3 and 4, they're the beloved who have become children of God. We looked last week how they are the called who have become the chosen, who are the beloved and who are the kept, both in the keeping power of God and in their own will, cooperating in that keeping to keep them as the people of God. We see one more title given to them in verse 4, that they are the saints, which we've talked about before. It literally translates the holy ones, the holy people of God. But Jude is not just writing to them about who the people of God are. He's also writing to them about who the people of God are not. And so the Holy Spirit has compelled him that he is to write about things that are not fun, but that are necessary. Instead of celebrating their shared salvation, he must appeal to them that they should contend for the faith. That word contend, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. It's a bit of an athletic term, but it goes a little bit further than just like compete. It's the idea of earnestly struggling for or defending. I like the way the Amplified translates it. It says that they are, he is appealing to them that they would fight strenuously for the defense of the faith. This is a call to arms. It's a call to fight. It's a call to struggle. There is a battle that is raging, and we can't stand by. We have to engage for the sake of the faith. We saw in the book of 1 Peter how we are not to fight against persecutors on the outside of the church. Rather, we're to suffer meekly under their persecution with hope. Friends, we are called to fight. It's just not against the persecutors. We are called to fight for the preservation of our true faith. And it has been since this time until now under attack. That true faith is our historic faith. The scripture there said that it was handed down once for all in verse 3. Handed down once for all. We have access to that one true faith through the Holy Scriptures illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read it. That historic faith that was handed down once for all of God's people. Can I tell you this morning that truth matters? Truth matters. And we are living in a time when truth, the very word, is under attack. Everybody has their own truth. Can I tell you that's not truth at all? And truth with a capital T matters. In Christian theology, we came up with a word to describe this, the importance of it. We call it orthodoxy. Ortho meaning right, doxy meaning doctrine. In other words, there is a truth, big T, capital T truth, that is communicated in this book through 
through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and it cannot be compromised, and it matters. And Jude is telling people that they need to be ready to fight for it. So can I ask you this morning, does your engagement with our source of truth reflect that truth matters? If somebody watched how often and to what depth that you studied this truth to be prepared to defend it, would they think that you think that truth matters? Because friends, if your only dose of truth is when you come into this building and hear it taught, you're in trouble. For one, you don't even know if it's being taught properly. We need to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts. says that they went and they searched the scriptures after they heard it taught. And they came back with questions. They wanted to make sure that what they were hearing lined up with the one truth that had been handed down once for all. Are you living like this truth matters? Because it does. And you cannot defend it if you do not know it. And you're in a dangerous place if you do not know it. Yet our faith is more than right belief. And the threat that Jude wanted wanted to warn them and appeal to them that they needed to be ready to fight against, that threat was about more than just right belief, though that was at its core. If we look at verse 4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. The threat in his day and the threat in ours was coming from certain ungodly people. The word ungodly implies the idea of a lack of reverential awe, respect, and fear toward God. That's what it is to be ungodly. To not fear him as God. To not respect him as God. To not be in awe of him as God. It's not having a right heart towards God and the reality of who he is. You see, there's another term that we use in Christian theological circles, and it's orthopathy, meaning right heart. And we have to start from a place of a proper respect that God is God and I am not. God is God and none of the people in my circles are. God is God and he has the final say. God is God. He is the only voice of authority in my life. I have to have that heart toward him. Or else my belief doesn't really matter. Even the demons believe and tremble, right? They have the right doctrine. They know it. But their heart is wrong. There's no true reverence towards God. These ungodly people were the threat. The word ungodly appears more times in this itty-bitty letter from Jude than it does in the entire New Testament in any other book. Jude monopolizes it. <laughs> One chapter, and he uses it more than any other biblical writer. I think he's trying to make a point. If we look ahead at verse 15, here he's talking about a prophecy that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, way back, 
in the days of the Old Testament had made. And look at these words. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you think Jude has an issue with ungodliness? If we look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6, we see there's some really, really good news for ungodly people. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you're among the ungodly this morning, this message isn't just a message of condemnation. It, there is a message of hope here that Christ died for ungodly people. So why is Jude so upset about ungodly people coming into the church? Well, let's look ahead a little bit and look somewhere else. At 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, wait a second. Jesus came and died for the ungodly, but he is storing up judgment to destroy the ungodly. Are you confused? What's this mean? Friends, it means that the blood of Jesus moves people out of the ungodly category. So the reason that Jude is upset is not because there are ungodly people whom Jesus died for that need the gospel. He's upset because there are people claiming to have been washed in the blood of Jesus, but they're still ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly, but not for them to stay that way. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, sheds a little bit of light on this whole idea of being ungodly. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You see, if people lack a reverential awe and respect of fear, a fear of God, they're not going to obey him. If they have a reverential awe, respect, and fear of God, it leads to obedience. And Ecclesiastes says this is the duty of people. That's why we were made, to fear God and be obedient to him. But you have to fear him first. In fact, this is such a connection that sometimes in the scriptures, the word ungodly is just translated as wicked. Because if you don't have reverential fear, awe, and respect for God, your lifestyle is going to be wicked. It automatically follows. We need orthodoxy, right belief. We need orthopathy, right heart. And guess what? If we don't have that right heart with that right belief, we also don't have orthopraxy, which is right practice. Truth. <laughs> this is truth. And so the ungodly, because they don't have a right heart towards God that recognizes his authority, they are disobedient and they live in wickedness. So what do we know about this ungodly threat that God has told you to have this hard conversation with the people about? 
First, we know that this ungodly threat is subtle. The Amplified words, well, they crept in unnoticed, just as if they were sneaking in by a side door. Corrupting ungodly influences on God's people do not announce themselves with trumpets and say they're of the devil. Ungodly influences do not portray that that is what they are. They come as wolves in sheep's clothing. They come as angels of light. And the ungodly influence that comes against the one true faith that's been passed down historically, that's given to us in the scriptures, this ungodly threat, it's subtle. Secondly, it's a threat from within churches, not outside of them. It crept in unnoticed into the church. Hear me out on this this morning. We need to be alert. We need to keep watch for the return of Jesus. But here's what I see so much in the church right now. I see Christians who think they're alert and on watch because they're watching to make sure that nobody persecutes us from the outside when the attack they need to be most concerned for is within the church. What has persecution historically done for the church? It's purified and strengthened it. When the church is persecuted, the church grows. The blood of the martyrs have been called the seed of the church. When persecution comes against us from the outside, the kingdom advances in spite of it. But where we need to be alert and keep watch is how the attack might come from within. And it's subtle. It creeps in. And friends, if we allow an ungodly influence to influence us, it leads to our destruction. Thirdly, we see that these ungodly people who are within the church will be judged, convicted, and condemned. Their condemnation was written long ago. They're not going to get away with it. But the scary part is if others in the church don't take notice. All right, so we have orthodoxy, right belief, orthopathy, right heart, orthopraxy, right practice. And we've seen how these ungodly people have infiltrated and they don't have a right heart and their practice isn't right, but they're also attacking people's right belief. And now we're going to find out why. It says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The specific orthodoxy issue that is under attack is a perversion of God's grace into sensuality. Sensuality is a word that's used in Galatians 5.19 as one of the fruits of the flesh. In contrast with the fruits 
of the spirit. It's the idea of unbridled lust and desires. Sensuality is allowing my body and my natural wants to rule my life rather than the reign of the Holy Spirit. And these ungodly people are teaching sensuality and calling it the beloved, incredible, precious grace of our God. Hear me, God's grace, unmerited favor. He died for the ungodly. Why? So he could change us. So he could clean us up and make us the temples of his Holy Spirit. But people were twisting that grace into a free license to do whatever you want. If your body desires a sexual relationship that the scriptures teaches is prohibited, go for it, it's grace. If you want to pursue your own selfish ambitions rather than invest in kingdom work, all good, it's grace. We all just get in by grace. If you want to be a glutton, eat until it kills yourself, and then you'll go to heaven because of grace. It's what Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 refers to as people whose God is their belly, or whose God is their appetite. Friends, we have appetites for things that aren't good for us, and just because we have the appetite does not mean God intended for us to do it. Church, you need to hear this. Not because there's not good news for the people who right now are living in sensuality, who are living an ungodly life. There is good news. Jesus died for them. He loves them. But he will not leave them in that ungodly, sensual mess. The blood of Jesus will clean them up. Amen. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Do you see that? You see belief, ignorance? You see heart, hardness of heart rather than having a right heart and they're disconnected from the life of God because of this. Verse 19 they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality letting their desires rule and reign greedy to practice every kind of impurity But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth, truth matters, is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Jesus died for the ungodly to make them godly. Amen. 
Look with me at Romans 13, 13 to 14. Romans 13, 13 to 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. None. Without even a hint. No provision. Romans addresses this explicitly in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. It says, what shall you say then after talking about grace? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We need a biblical doctrine of grace rather than a perverted and worldly understanding of it. And it's crept in unnoticed like it came through a side door. Grace is not our get out of living a holy life free card. It's not. Grace is that sinners who were never good enough were given an opportunity through the supernatural mercy, love, and power of God to be transformed. I'm not telling you that you never mess up when you're seeking this. I am telling you that when you do mess up, you repent and get your heart right and get your thinking right and you change your course so that your practice again becomes right. The pattern is to change. And it says specifically that these ungodly people who would come in, that through their perversion of the grace of our God into sensuality, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at Titus chapter 1 verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I had an epiphany. It's been over a decade ago that I've shared many times with different people from Colossians 3 where it talks about whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I had an epiphany as I studied that chapter that when God gave us the commandment not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, he didn't just mean dropping it verbally without respect and fear and awe. He meant not taking on the identity as one of his people and then denying him with the way that we lived. It's taking his name in vain. And friends, as we watch 
and we see things that concern us over will there be persecution of God's people in our time, in our country, would that happen? I don't know. But we might ask ourselves the question, well, if a gun were put to my head like it's been put to believers' heads in other parts of the world, if my life was threatened and I was told, deny Jesus or die, would I have the strength to not deny him and be willing to die? Friends, I'm asking you, are you denying him already? Because if we pervert his grace into a license to live immorally, as though it doesn't matter, as though the blood of Jesus wasn't costly, as though the sacrifice that he made wasn't enough, as though he hasn't already given us everything that we need for a life of godliness, if we refuse to put to death the deeds of the flesh, if we will not deny our flesh, we are denying Jesus as Lord and we're proclaiming our belly our master. It's a hard truth. Lots of things I would have loved to preach about. But it creeps in unnoticed. Hear me again. If you look at your life and you see that there's ungodliness there, that does not mean that God is against you. He is for you and he loves you and he sent his son to die for you. I'm just telling you, don't trick yourself into thinking that you have already experienced the cleansing of the blood of Jesus if things have not begun to change in how you live. There is a perverted doctrine of grace that would say that we just Mentally ascend to all these things. Oh yeah, Jesus came, he died, I want to go to heaven. Grace, I'm good. God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace wants to change you from the inside out and make you a new creation. If you find yourself bowing the knee to the God of your belly more than you bow the knee to Jesus, then the Lord in his loving grace is just calling you right now to himself. And he's saying, look, your desires were never meant to be your Lord. They're not nearly as good of a Lord as I am. They'll actually lead you into situations that will harm you. They'll destroy your spirit. I'm asking you to be willing. Jesus said, I'm asking you to be willing to deny yourself and follow me. And you'll find that I'm a good master. You won't always understand. It won't always be easy. Some of the things I'll tell you not to do, there'll be a big part of your flesh that really wants to buck against me. But you've got to deny that flesh and you've got to own me as your Lord and I'll show you. And I'll show you that it's worth it. And I'll make you into one of my saints, one of my holy people. God's grace is an incredible gift because none of us deserve any of this. We don't deserve an opportunity to serve him. We don't deserve an opportunity to love him. We don't deserve a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. Lord, don't let us pervert that grace, though, into something that it's not. Because we want the truth. You pray with me this morning.
Lord, when you speak hard truth to us, there's a part of us that might want to recoil against it. Lord, I pray that part be silenced in each of us and that our spirits that were meant to be brought to life through your presence, that they would yearn for you and be willing to receive what's true from your hand. God, please don't let us be a people that would pervert your grace into a license to be our own lords. There is only one Lord. There is only one God. There is only one King of Kings, and it's you. And so this morning we take a knee. Lord, thank you that your grace would invite us to come. That Jesus, you shed your blood so that all of those sins that we've committed, all of the ungodliness in our lives, it can be washed away. It doesn't have to count against us. We won't die as we come into your presence by your grace. Thank you for that. And Lord, help us to experience the fullness of that grace that would begin now fitting us for your kingdom. That your kingdom might rule and reign within us. It's in Jesus' name we